Yes, everyone, welcome back to another week and another episode of the Celtic View podcast. I'm Ryan Marr, and as ever, we're joined by our Celtic View editor, Paul Cuddehy. Uh, Paul, it's another week without any first-team action for Celtic. But it is getting closer. We're counting down the days. A bit like an advent calendar, we're just opening it up and we're, we're getting to the, well, the 17th yeah, in terms of Celtic. I know, it's feeling like it's getting a little bit closer. We've had the World Cup to keep us occupied, though, so it's not been, it's not been like a normal pre-season, but... Yeah, still, still counting down the days till, till we get back to seeing Celtic in action. Um, we've got plenty to bring you in, in this episode, even without any first-team action, because, Paul, last week you sat down and spoke with Martin O'Neill, our former manager, who's, who's brought out a, a new book, so plenty of stories to, to tell there, so we'll get into that all in, all in a little bit. Um, it's not been quiet, though. At Celtic Park, we had the announcement last week of new signing Alistair Johnson coming into the club. We had Yuki Kobayashi, defender who we signed a couple of weeks ago. He made his first appearance at Lennox Town on Friday as well, and we sat down to have a first interview with him. Um, what have you made so far of getting this this work done really, really early, and what have you made of the two guys so far in speaking to them? Yeah, I mean, I think it's in keeping with with what's happened since the manager's come in. That I, you know, there's a, there's an element of forward planning there that we've seen that in the last few transfer windows of identifying targets and I think obviously the, the, those two players in particular it's helped as well that their domestic seasons have finished anyway so even though they can't play for us officially till January the 1st it means then that they, they then have a, a good period of, of almost a month so Yuki's actually away with the team in Portugal so it gives him his first opportunity to meet his new teammates to train with them and I suppose it lets them get up to speed with the kind of the, the way that the manager wants the team to play, and it's good. It's a good way of them bedding in before they, they hit the ground running, hopefully in, in January. And yeah, I mean, I think it's exciting. I, I know, um, you know, I spoke to Alistair Johnson last week via Zoom. He was still in Qatar, you know, just about to leave after Canada's exploits in the World Cup. And I know as soon as he was linked. I think a lot of Celtic fans were, were taking a keen interest in, in Canada's three games just to see what he was like. Um, he come, comes across really well. I think he, you know, he, he speaks really well. I think he's really enthusiastic. I think when you look at his, his career and, and even when you heard the manager, I know you spoke to the manager about him, I think he fits that mould of, of a really hard-working player, a player, that, a player that wants to get better and improve and sees this step as a massive step for him, but also... Interestingly, for Canadian football, he said his manager uh, is is buzzing for the move as much as him because I think it raises the profile and I think the idea is that obviously the more Canadian players that are playing in, in Europe's top leagues for Europe's top teams, that can only benefit the, the Canadian national team, but obviously we hope primarily it benefits Celtic. Yeah, and I think you said to Alistair as well when you were speaking to him, it's, it's a Canadian player signing for Celtic and we know that in Canada, there's so many Celtic fans over there as well, so it must be great for, for all the Canadian people who are Celtic fans to have someone to kind of cling on to that a little bit more. Absolutely, and I think the good thing is, obviously, there's no language barrier, but also he's not going to have to acclimatise in terms of the, the UK weather, because he was saying that, um, I think he, he grew up in Vancouver, and he said that's really quite, you know, very wet, so it's kind of keeping in, in terms of west of Scotland, but also I think, you know, when he's playing in, in Montreal and and the the winters they they had or they have are harsher than here, so actually it's probably quite mild. So you you'll probably be delighted to be to be coming here. So those things I think will help him settle in really quickly. And then it's just a case of you know he I think he's got a week off after the World Cup, and then I think he'll meet up with the team once they return to Scotland. And it's a case of then training with them. And I think I, over the years you've you've seen it where. I think the, the players that are there that have done, I mean, they've done an incredible job so far, but I, th I think also it, it raises their game and, and gives them a new kind of sense of enthusiasm whenever a new player comes in, because I think it just infuses the, the squad with, right, we're, we're continuing to up our game with, with new players coming in. So I think it's, it's really encouraging that both those players effectively will be available from the start of January to play for us and I think that's that's, that's brilliant from you know what the club have done. I know because we saw the impact last season when we signed Maeda, Idaguchi and Atati and I think that was all announced on the, the 1st of January um, so they were pretty much available as soon as the football restarted after the, the winter break and you saw what a difference that made to the team just getting that little bit, a little added piece of 
energy to the team, the quality as well. So hopefully that's the case with these two guys. Obviously, don't know. We've had a chance to see Alistair Johnson at the World Cup play a couple of games. Um, not seen much of Yuki Kobayashi yet to really know anything about what what he'll, what he'll bring and what he'll add in terms of his qualities. But um, even just meeting him on Friday to speak to him for his, his first interview with the club, he's got a little bit of a grasp of English, which is... Which is good. He was saying some. He was saying some words and trying to have a conversation. So hopefully that will help him settle in as well. And it always just strikes me he's a twenty-two-year-old, but with footballers in general, I think a lot of the time, kind of like the maturity levels of them for such such a young age. I mean, it must be such a a big journey to make at that age to leave your home to to move to a new place, but. You know the the players that we've signed so far from Japan have all have all taken to it like a duck to water. So hopefully it'll be the same with UK. And I think it does help him the fact that he's obviously he was former teammate of Kyogo's. Anyway, yeah, of so course. That will help. But the fact that he's then got a small mini community within the the club who are already settled in, who have, have done really well for us. Obviously, Dai's and Maida. We're hoping that we won't see him for a while because obviously we know a lot in Japan. You know to see how long they progress and how long he's been. He's been impressive in the World Cup as well, so he'll not be there at first. You know, obviously it's a while before he, he comes back. But I think the fact that Dyson's there, Kyogo, Rio Hitate, Eriguchi as well, so I think it makes makes it easier, I think, for the new player to, to settle in. But then it's all about his, his football, and you know the manager had kind of said, you know, again he's he's got a month now to to get used to the the pace of the training and the, the way we play before he, he can even be considered. And I think the managers not just looking at the next game I think a lot of these things are long term planning so whether or not he immediately comes into the squad in January or whether we bed him in slowly you, you know you just the way the manager's brought these players in and how he's used them has, has been so impressive so I, you know I think I'm just looking forward to seeing how he is Yeah definitely uh, Paul another person that you had the chance to speak to last week was our former manager everyone's favourite Martin O'Neill how, how was it, the, the, the chance to sit down and, and chat to him? Because he just brought out a new book, didn't he? Yeah, he just brought his autobiography out. Um, so he was up in, at Celtic Park. He was uh, having a, a night, kind of one of the launch nights at the Kerrydale suite. And there was a few hundred Celtic fans were there, enthralled by him. I mean, he's just brilliant. He, I, I think everybody remembers what he was like when he was here and what he did for the club and kind of, to an extent, brought us back to where we think we should be, you know, from, from the moment he arrived and that iconic moment when he was on the steps at Celtic Park saying he would do everything he could to to bring success to the football club, which is one of uh, football's great understatements. And, you know, what un, unfolded over the next five years was incredible. But it was just great. And I, I did mention to him that, you know, one of the things that's, that reminded me in the book is somebody who remembered, you know, remembers him playing. It's just, it was a reminder of what a great football career he had as well as what a great managerial career he's had as well and uh, I think you could, to be fair, I think you could sit and talk to him for hours and hours and never tire of of listening to him because he's just, he's that type of person. Was he always like that as well when he worked at the club and initially, obviously you were you were here at that time as well so would have worked very closely with him, has he always kind of been the same character? I mean I think when he was there as the manager, I mean you did feel it was his Celtic view and it was his match programme that we worked on, so you were working for him and he took a really keen interest. He was almost editor. Well, you were very conscious of the fact that he did read everything that you that was written in the magazine, that, you know, and he did be very supportive of it as well. So that was great from, from our point of view. But I think he was the manager. It was different. It's different when you meet him now because he's, you know, he's probably more effusive and chats away. He, he did, as, as you would, keep your distance because his primary role and his primary responsibility was the team. But he was great and, and there was, you know, maybe two or three times, certainly one of the highlights of, of my, my time at Celtic was, was actually after Martin had announced he was leaving and we'd won the Scottish Cup at the weekend and he was basically going around the building saying goodbye to everyone and he'd come into our office and sat for about an hour, just had a cup of coffee. And I don't think anybody spoke. I think we just sat and listened to him telling stories about him playing under Brian Clough and then telling, telling some stories about what had happened over the last five years that we hadn't known about in the dressing room. It was, And at the end of it, you just thought how lucky we were as Celtic fans to be able to sit in his company and listen to him. And uh, I, I just, yeah, I've, I just absolutely love him. I think he's just a, a brilliant, brilliant guy. I, he seems like a brilliant storyteller as well. I mean, you must have had time 
with him here at this club. I'm sure you've got plenty of stories. Maybe some you can't tell, or some you some you can tell. But uh, it just seems like such a such an amazing character and an amazing person. Yeah, and as I say, I think when he was the manager, you know, it was a, a real interesting dynamic because he obviously had Steve Walford, who was the first team coach, he had John Robertson, who was the assistant manager, and they were the kind of conduit between him and the first team. And he did kind of similar to to the, what Ange Postecoglou does. He does keep a kind of distance. He's not. There, he wasn't in the dressing room all the time with the players when they were training. He he was very much the manager. They played for him, but you know the guys that were on the ground maybe doing the coaching sessions every day and and according to his instructions. So as I say, you wouldn't. I don't think MD was there would, at the time, like like in our position that we're working there, would say all oh, that we were really good friends with him. But he was brilliant to work for. But he was the manager, and you knew he was the manager, and his primary role, as I say, was dealing with the team, and he, and he did it. You know, absolutely brilliantly. Um, what a team that was as well, because I mean, for myself, that's when I was first starting to get into to Celtic. Was the kind of the back end of of that team, and just some of the some of the moments, some of the players we had, some of the football we played. The, the memories are just just amazing. So, yeah, it's a, a brilliant, brilliant manager in this club's history. And, why don't we hear from, from Martin O'Neill now? We're gonna we're gonna split up this interview into two parts. We're gonna have the first part this week and the second part next week. But let's hear from the former Celtic manager and his chat with Paul now. Martin, it's great to have you on the Celtic View podcast. More importantly, it's great to have you, you back at Celtic Park. How does it feel to be back up in Glasgow and back here at Paradise? Gosh, you know, this is um uh, it's when I when I've been to, in, into this room before, we used to set out with tables and things like this here, so it really looks really really strange. But uh, genuinely nice to be back. Lovely to be back among some friends as well too. And uh, and and Glasgow obviously pretty special to me, and Celtic Park even more so. Now obviously we're here partly to talk about your, your autobiography, which has just come out on days like these. I always love a book that the song, the title, sings to me. And as soon as I saw the title, I immediately thought of that famous Matt Monroe song and the opening of the, the original Italian job. I'm not sure, because I know in the book you talk about some songs that you well, enjoy. I'm glad you said that, because that is exactly right. It, it came from that, that um, uh, my, wife, um, my wife heard this song one day and, um, and um, I watched back find out it was the it was it is it the opening sequence to it's the opening the, sequence opening to sequence Michael Caine yeah one, when yeah. the boys doing the driving of the car yeah and the song Matt Monroe's song and uh, I I absolutely love the song and so did my wife so it was her choice and said on days like these which could be either could be good days or they could be bad days yeah. you know so make up your own mind but that's exactly right so you're spot on about it you know? excellent now obviously a lot of people uh, we'll, we'll know you in more recent years, obviously manager at Celtic. Mm-hmm. People will know you manager at Leicester, manager at Aston Villa, Republic of Ireland. Mm-hmm. What I think is really good about the book is a reminder for people of my age, but I think for younger readers, that you had a pretty impressive playing career, mm-hmm. which may be not forgotten about because people see what you've done most recently, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a pretty impressive playing CV. Well. That's very nice of you to say so, but I, I think that there's uh, there's definitely an element of that when talking about uh, younger people because my daughters never saw me play, never saw me play, and I had to remind them that I actually did play, that there was a part of my life before they were born that actually belonged to me and, and my, my wife. So um, so from that viewpoint, yes, I, I can understand totally. So all they ever knew uh, is about my early, uh, my early um, uh, managerial time, and so just to just to stick down some some things about a playing time, it's not that I didn't remind them. Of course, I reminded <laughs> them all the time, but uh, outside that, I don't. I'm not so sure that that they believe me. Yeah, well, that must have been nice for them because obviously they've been involved in the whole project. But it, as you say, it's they're finding out a part of your life that. There may be <coughs> newbie snippets of, but you're, you're going into detail of growing up in Ireland, how you, you, you made your way in terms of football and, mm-hmm. and that, that kind of thing when you were you know, a, a European champion. Because I was wondering whether you, you have the European medals there, just occasionally to remind them to say, look, this. Well, another good point. About, uh, I would say about maybe about four years ago, um, uh, I don't know what, there was a sort of a, um, a spring clean in our house. And my daughters uh, went up to went up to a room. Or one of my daughters went up to the room, 
and she was the first time, I genuinely think this is, this is true, I think it was the first time that she, she saw the uh, European Cup medal. Right. They're, 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 they're not on display. They will not blind you the minute you come into my house, <laughs> you know. And, uh, Slightly disappointed and, at that. Yes, <laughs> honestly. And they were stuck, stuck up in an attic. And, uh, and put, so she brought all the medals down, so we started to have a, have a look at them. And, she's, uh, and I think that um, uh, she was actually, for the first time, actually reasonably impressed, you know. So, but really, um, I did, the, the great, naturally great days, um, and I think in terms of, of what I try to put down in the book was really the, the struggle to get there, the struggle for approval from you know one great manager like uh, like Brian Clough, in possibly the same way that some of the Celtic players of '67 days were, you know, pining for that approval from Jock Steen, and um, and eventually when when it all comes together, as it did for the '67 team in Lisbon, as it did for us Nottingham Forest in 1979 and 1980 particularly 80 when I played in the final, it's just, it, everything's worth it then. All the struggles that you've had before become really worth it. Yeah, because the, the back cover actually has a, a smiling picture of you with the European Cup. Well, it's ra rather unusual. You know. yeah, well, anybody who reads the book will know that, that that is obviously 1980 because obviously 1979 was the, was the one where you were a substitute. And you did mention that, that when you see pictures of you after the game, that it, obviously you're pleased for the team and your teammates, but... Mm. As a, as a footballer, you want to be on the park, you want I, to play in that. Absolutely. This is the whole, the whole thing is about playing. I wonder today in the current, in the current game, how players who, um, who are substitutes, how they really feel. Do you know, at the end of, at the end of games, in, in particular I'm watching some of the World Cup matches where all the substitutes are racing on, and it's a nice feeling if you're a manager to feel that everybody's together, but you know, I'm not so sure that that, that is totally true. If you want to play, well, I think Ronaldo's kind of proved that in one aspect. But for me, um, you've got to be playing. You've got to be on that field. When that final whistle goes, you've got to be in that field. And I think the disappointment for myself and Archie Gemmell, who was a really, really top-quality player, for us to miss out in the final uh, when we had been heavily involved in the, in the, in the lead-up matches to that was particularly disappointing. And the disappointment comes really stems from the fact that Nottingham Forest, there's a fairly decent chance that Nottingham Forest are ne never going to contest another final. Yeah. So for, for it to come round for me and play in the next one, and Archie Gemmell's left the football club, so it just shows you how disappointing that was for him. You know? So, uh, yeah, uh, just, just winning, winning the game. And the contrast between that and the previous years, like day and night. Yeah, because it did actually, what it made me think of was Jimmy Greaves in the 66 World Cup final missing out. Yeah the likes of John Hughes, Joe McBride missing out in 67 for the European Cup final and as you say, for, for people who maybe don't remember, Nottingham Forest coming up, winning the league at the first attempt mm -hmm. against a really impressive European champions in Liverpool, yeah. then winning back-to-back -back European Cups and that, the comparison would be Fulham winning the Championship last year, winning the Premier League this year and then winning the Champions League for the next Absolutely. two years. It's extraordinary. Absolutely, that's that. That's that's a very very good comparison. You're spot on, and uh, and I remember uh, our first game back in the, what was called the first division in those days would be the Premier League now, where we went to Goodison Park, and honestly we could not get a breath for 20 minutes in the game, and then I don't know how we got down the field, but we forced a corner. We scored from the corner, and honestly never looked back after that. It seemed strange. But I, and I, remember, I remember thinking that if this is what this first division or premiership as it's called nowadays is like, I'm not going to survive this, you know. And then, then you start to get used to it, you get used to the pace of the game, then you start to get used to opposition and you feel as if, and then you, when you're winning football matches you feel as if, well, actually this, in many aspects, this is actually easier than the old second division. It wasn't, but, uh, it, but it, sometimes it felt like that. So overall it was uh, naturally great days and, and you, Again, as I said, if you, if you knew that you were going to be successful at the end, I think all the bad days, you don't mind enduring. Yeah. One of the things that struck me, and, and it's your journey, but you probably be the first to say you don't do it alone. And there was various times I felt that there was key figures, Jimmy McAlinden at mm -hmm. Distillery, even Billy Bingham yep. at, with Northern mm -hmm. Ireland, obviously Brian Clough, that mm -hmm. were key figures in your football journey at really important times for you? I, I, do you know what? I actually think that that is important and it would be interesting, you know, if, if a player, 
if a player has the sort of single-mindedness, let's say, of a Ronaldo or something like this here, then that well and truly good to him. But a lot of people may, might not actually be built that way. Sometimes you do need someone to believe in you early on. And, and at distillery, at the, my, it, it, I mean, I'm, I'm an amateur, really, I'm two nights a week as the, as the semi-professionals were doing. But my first four or five games for the reserves were simply awful, awful, you know. And yet Mike Linden, thankfully he hadn't seen any of the games, but <laughs> he must have seen a little bit in training. And he said, no, son, you're ready for the first team. And I felt that, that that Thursday night when he told me I was going to be playing on the Saturday, I felt as, as ready as, as uh, what... Uh, I couldn't be less ready, let me put it this way. And then I scored against Portadown and I never looked back. And a couple of months later we won the Irish Cup and I scored twice. And brings us into, uh, it brings us into the, um, uh, the, the following year's uh, European Cup Winners' Cup. I scored against Barcelona and two weeks later, or three weeks later, I'm at, uh, I'm at Nottingham Forest as a professional player. So all, as you mentioned, down to Michael Linden's uh, real belief in me. Yeah. I mean that is again. It was the fact that the Monday after you won the Irish Cup and you scored the two goals, you're back in the college. I think going to a Latin class, is it? Mm. But I was wondering whether when you when you make that trip over to join Nottingham Forest, mm. you're giving up a you know your studies mm -hmm. for law. Yeah. How, how you, did your parents were they quite supportive or, or were they maybe saying? You need to remember this, you know, you're giving up what is a really, could be a really good career for yeah. something that's much more precarious and unpredictable. Yeah, well, my mother was a driving force for education, you know, um, and my elder brothers and sisters before that there had really decent educations. I know it helps when you pass what was called 11 plus in those days, and that got you a scholarship, but it didn't get you, it didn't get you boarding fees and things like this here, so um, my father had to work hard for that. And... Um, and so I spent five years at a boarding school before the whole family moved up to Belfast. But my mother would have been, uh, if, if I'd said to her that I, uh, I was going to continue with the law studies or, and continue in education, she would have been delighted, really. She's a driving force for education. And, um, and I, think my father, I think my father really probably uh, maybe have a less of a say on it. But I think there was something, I think it's secretly, I think he, he would like to see whether a son of his could have actually made the grade, and I think that that, that was the case. But I did, I did actually go back to the head of the law department at Queen's University and say to him, "Listen, if, you know, this, I'm in a precarious job for a while, and uh, it might not, it might not come through." And he said, "It'd be all right to come back in the next, what was it, the next five or six years." So from, I, I, I kind of, not that I wanted to start. No, I didn't want to start first year law when I was 26. Far from it, yeah. you know. But at least in the back of my mind, I felt as if I could go back there. And then you, you also make the point, um, the fact that it's quite funny because on the one hand, your family decided to move over and you've, you've enjoyed this brief burst of freedom and you're like, can I not get a few more months of it? But Absolutely. then at the same time, given what, what was unfolding in the north yeah. of Ireland, that actually it was maybe a godsend for your family to, to come I, over. I think that, that, that you, you have summed it up Admirably, and that's exactly right. I wanted this freedom. I wanted. I was enjoying myself, really enjoying it. You know, I, I'm, uh, I'm whether I was doing well or not, but I'm, I'm pretending I'm doing really well. You know, at, uh, at Nottingham Forest, and I'm, I know, and I just have this freedom. I'm staying, I'm staying in this place with another uh, young professional, funnily enough, from uh, from Derry City, Seamus McDowell. And uh, we'd been thrown out of our digs in the first, the first day, but we ended up going to this place that was full of, um, uh, full of workmen from all over the country, you know, sharing body tales and stuff like this here. So it was really fine. And, um, and I, I, I just, there was something really remarkably brilliant about it because it was all new to me. And this is what I, I was really enjoying. But it was that sort of freedom. And then for, uh, you know, for parents saying, oh, we're, we'll, we'll be over in the next week or two. I don't, oh, hold on, just no steady. No, no, no steady. Can you not make that a couple of months now? But of course, then uh, by the time that um, the troubles were, uh, you know, um, escalating, no doubt, no doubt at all about it. Ben, it's 1971, 72, and you're talking about Bloody Sunday in, in uh, late January of, of uh, 1972. So... I, you know, the, the, the idea or the decision for them to come over actually proved uh, uh, pretty fortuitous. 
you obviously you start life at Nottingham Forest. It's a pretty impressive start. Again, I think it was, I think you see, twenty four days after you mm. you join, mm. you make your debut, yeah. a goal scoring debut. Mm. You follow that up with a goal mm. against Manchester United at Old Trafford. You're talking best Charlton mm-hmm. Law. Yeah. These guys, again, kind of similar to what you were saying about how when you start in the first division with Nottingham Forest, you think is this this, this is easy. Mm-hmm. Was there a wee sense of oh, this, this is great? This is absolutely. You know, I, I jokingly say that I thought you know just you know what an easy <laughs> game, what an easy game this is. Unfortunately, it didn't turn out like that at all. And there were many moments even during the course of that season where I felt that the game was really beyond me. Uh, one moment in particular against Derby County, who ended up winning the league that year. We're playing at the baseball ground. The pitch is just a quagmire. And I've got the ball in the middle of the field. And, that, uh, you know, you have a quick picture in your mind of where you want to move to. And, uh, you know, it seemed as if I had plenty of time to manoeuvre the ball. I hadn't gone three steps until I think it was Colin Todd came in and robbed me of the ball. And I honestly thought, it's like, it's like a, a moment. It's, uh, I remember Kevin Keegan some years later talking about uh, a moment when he was, I think, playing for Newcastle where he felt that just something like that had happened to him and he realised he, he can't do it anymore. And, well, and he had already proved himself. I'm a young fellow in the team and I think, oh, wow, wow, this is really tough. And that day, Derby County beat Nottingham Forest about 4-0 and uh, really the gulf between the two teams was incredible and, and Derby go on to win the league, Nottingham Forest get relegated and that's when you realise this is you're a long way from you're a long way from the top. Yeah. I mentioned obviously some key figures and, and certainly as a player when, when Brian Clough's arrival at Nottingham Forest mm. obviously changes everything at the club. I'm guessing that for the players as well because it, you've you've got somebody who's won the first division with Derby before, needs to prove himself again after what happened at Leeds. Mm-hmm. And, and he changes the whole dynamic of the mm. of the club. Did you sense that right away? I, yes, you, you could. Even though we won the first two games under Brian Clough, and you know what? He never won another game for 16 matches. Incredible. But Brian Clough was never going to get sacked because he was Brian Clough. Um, so, yes, even though the, the games didn't necessarily follow until Peter Taylor arrived, you just knew that there was something going to stir. There was something stirring about it. was taking a wee bit longer than even he would have imagined, but there's something, uh, something stirring, and uh, it's probably the best way to describe it. And when Peter Taylor arrived 16 months later, 17 months later, the two of them, there was a, a, a renewed energy about Brian Clough. His, his mate had joined him, you know, giving him all the confidence in the world. Not saying that Brian Clough had lost confidence. I think he did a little bit when, when, he, when he was thrown out at Leeds United. But eventually, with uh, Peter Taylor arriving, Taylor's uh, eye for a player, Taylor's um, motivation of Brian Clough, more than motivation of us players, but motivation of Brian Clough to become, to become the Brian Clough that everyone knew. And uh, together, you just felt that they were going to make something happen at the club. You just wanted to be around when 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 it was, and that that was the most important thing. Because he he's obviously, and people would have looked over the years, <coughs> particularly when you went into management of of his influence. And mm. I think I'd be right in saying that of all his ex-players, you would be the most successful that mm. went on in terms of mm. management. But yeah. I was wondering, even you know that idea of him and Peter Taylor, something clicked. And again, you make the point in in the book about the importance of that unit that you had, John Robertson and Steve Walford. Mm and having that absolute trust in them and knowing you, you were all in sync. You would obviously have had disagreements behind mm-hmm. the scenes, but, yeah. you know, to the players, mm-hmm. and that was so important for you, and, you know, we get the benefit of that here at Celtic, obviously. Well, John and Steve were, uh, were instrumental in, 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 in our success. I thought that, um, uh, yes, we were very, very tight together, the three of us. I think that what, uh, I think that, uh, that what I said to John and Steve is, listen, you're going to be, you're in among the players, you're there, Steve particularly with, as a coach, and John, John developed great rapport with, it, with, uh, with the players. And I said to them, unless something really serious is happening, don't be reporting everything back to me. I don't really want to, I don't need to know it, I don't need it. And, uh, and so the players developed a great trust in John and Steve. And, um, and while it, not for one minute did, did I think I remained aloof from it, I, I don't think I did, but I just kept a little bit of a distance away, you know, where, where your voice was really important in match days and things like that. So, but John, myself and Steve were really tight-knit 
and um, and I think the players realised that you know that they weren't going to be influencing someone there you know to not that they would want to have broken up the trio but I think that 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 trust that you had in them was so important for instance I knew that John or Steve whatever as you mentioned any sort of disagreement we might have in private you knew that when I make the decision that they're not going to go into Henrik Larsson and say well Henrik you know <laughs> you know what I would have picked a different team to yeah, that and yeah. you just knew that that was never going to happen and when the players realized that I think that that's that's um, we all became a, a sort of a, a closer group yeah because trust is such, I, I guess is such a key element in, in football in so many different relationships and as you say you had a really strong dressing room of, of top players and big mm -hmm. strong personalities yeah. which you were having to manage but they need to they need to trust your process they need to trust what you're doing mm -hmm. and as you say they sometimes they need to trust the, the assistant manager they yeah. need to trust the coach and mm -hmm. if that, any of that breaks down that's probably why you see other teams when it doesn't work yes i think i think that you're, you're absolutely right and uh, i just i i felt that um as i say most important thing as i knew that steve and john wouldn't let you down they wouldn't be going behind your back and saying something different to what you know whatever you even that, even if their opinion was different to the one that you were you were forcing, you were forcing down their throats, as it were. Sometimes I had to do that, and um, but um, yeah, I just and I, I again I just get back to the the players. The players um, they grew to really trust John and Steve in many aspects. They grew to be very very friendly with them, and they knew that whatever that they would be saying to the uh, uh, to John and Steve, that John and Steve were not reporting immediately back to me, you know, and I didn't need it either, you know, I had more important issues to deal with, you know. Was at Martin and as we said we'll give you the second part of that interview next week and it was a, a night last week Paul where Celtic fans got to to come and, and meet Martin O'Neill and by all accounts just from the chats we've been having afterwards he seemed like he was in brilliant form on the night the Celtic fans seemed to love themselves love the night as well and also just stories of him signing every every single person's books he just seemed to have so much time for everyone yeah and, and interestingly we were talking to the to the woman who from the publishers who was accompanying him on this kind of book tour and she said he's been absolutely brilliant to work with and I think I think every person that's sort of met him whether it was at Celtic Park or elsewhere he spends a bit of time in them I think it's not just a case of signing the book I think every book signing or signing of a book is a personalised message you'll sit and talk to them take photographs and, and be really great I think really grateful that people are or buying his book and want to read his story and I think it just I mean, it just kind of emphasises that you know how much he, he means to Celtic fans but also I think how much Celtic means to him because he did say um, in the interview that he could have written a whole book just on the, the five years of Celtic because obviously it's the story of his, his whole life from growing up in Ireland and then he's progressing as a footballer and then becoming a manager right through to managing the Ireland national side and, and what he's doing now. But, he, you know, there could have been several volumes given everything that he has achieved in the game. But, yeah, I think everybody who was there at the Cadill Suite uh, was just uh, really impressed, as, probably not surprisingly, but, yeah, I think they absolutely loved it. Um, there was also some football over the weekend for the women's team and the B team, Paul. Um, we'll start off with a, a round-up of the women's team action. There were 7-0 winners on Sunday night against Dundee United that keeps them still three points off the top of the league and, and the hunt for the for the, the title race and 
it's another impressive display and another big victory for the women's team this season. It's not the first time that we, we've said that. Yeah, and again, I think if you look at the, the spread of goals, I mean, it was Shen got a hat-trick, yep. her first hat-trick for Celtic, but there was quite a good spread of goals. Uh, Maria McInerney and I think uh, Tyree Burchill, who a famous surname and a famous dad, obviously, who had who uh, scored a few goals for us, Mark Burchill during his time. They both are academy graduates, they both got their first senior goals for Celtic. So there was a lot of positives and I think the target had been, we've got another home game against Motherwell just before Christmas, so I think the target was to make sure we win those games and go into the break. There's a short break of a few weeks and a really positive frame of mind. So a really, you know, really impressive victory and I'm sure the Fran Alonso will be delighted with that. Yeah, could, as we said, at the start of the season, we saw a lot of these big victories. I think we had a 9-0 and we had an 8-0 as well um, at the start of that season. We weren't conceding many goals. And then of late, we've, I think we won the last two games now, but we had a result against Glasgow City, which, which didn't go our way. Then got a, a good point against Rangers in, in the derby. So things now seem to be kind of getting back on track. Yeah, I mean, I think no, there's such a long way still to go and, and the games against Glasgow City and Rangers, I think between the, the three clubs will be crucial in, in determining the outcome of the title because the, there is very, very little to choose between the three teams, as you, as you see. I think we narrowly lost to Glasgow City, we, we drew against Rangers and, and could have actually won that game. So those games, and, and I think Rangers drew with Glasgow City, so those games are going to be key. But in and around that, and I think as we saw last season, that we maybe dropped some points against sides that we were expected to win and I think what the team's done this season, they had a few changes but it seems to be they lose very few goals and they're scoring a lot of goals so they're, they're making sure that when they come into these big games that they are crucial and it's just a case of then taking the next step and, and winning one or two of them just to just say that we're still well in the hunt and there's still such a long way to go in the season. Yeah and for the B team they're now up to second in the Lone League table, they had another impressive victory themselves. 5-0 win over Edinburgh University. Again, similar to the, to the women's team, things seem to start to be picking up again for the, for the Bees. Yeah, it was a, a busy week, obviously. You know, plenty of goals. They had the, the four each game the, the previous weekend that we spoke about. And then they had a, a good 2-1 victory in the midweek where they had to come from behind and, and get two goals, which again... You know that Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday. It was that would have been. I think that would have been a really big win for them. Just to you know, in the back of the four each game, which they should have won. Probably disappointment to, to bounce back and make sure they didn't drop any points against Bonus. Then to follow that up with a, a pretty emphatic five 0 win at the weekend, and you know again that's that's encouraging. They've got a lot of games still coming up over the next few weeks, including a, a pretty big derby at the at the end of the month. Um, so. They, you know, they, I think the Darno D and, and Steve McManus will be pleased with the way that the, the team, you know, we, we spoke about it before, that the benefits of playing in the the youth league, the UFA youth league, is they're beginning to reap those benefits and you can see the players now know the, the benchmark that they need to, to reach, not only at that level, but then to try and push on, because ultimately they all want to end up in the the Celtic first team, so no, really, really encouraging one. Yeah, this week they've got uh, Berwick at home on, on Tuesday night and then Cowdenbeath away on Saturday. It's obviously interesting with the with the B team because we talk about it a lot here and, and Darren and Stephen talk about it, how it's more about the, the development and making sure they're playing to a certain style, potentially a lot of time over the results because if you were to look at it, if this was the first team and you had the derby game coming up, so Rangers are top at the moment in the Lone League, Celtic are second, you'd be thinking, right, you just need to win all your games, get to that point, get another win, and then you're, you know, ch chipping off more points on the table, hopefully go ahead at that point. Do you think that's something that will be in the B team's mind, or do you just still think they'll have that same mentality of just focusing their performances? Well, I think there's a, I think there's a balance. I mean, I think definitely in the way that the, the setup is this, this season in terms of normal circumstances replicating the first team, and I think because there's so many games, I'm sure that the coaches have been drumming it into it, never look too far ahead. So, you know, there's a game on Tuesday night, that's the, that'll be their sole focus, you know, when they're in training today. But, you know, I've heard Darren and Stephen saying, obviously, the performances are important, but winning is, that winning mentality is part of the, their development as well. That I'm sure if at a certain point, if the performances were great, but we were losing every single game, then they would look at that again because... You, you, you want to, to breed that winning mentality because those players, when they get into the first team, 
winning is everything, you know, a draw is not acceptable. That's that's the pressure of playing for Celtic and it's why the players that, that play for our first team, that's why that's what's so impressive because not every player can cope with that. So that's part of the development. Obviously when you know, when they're looking at performances and they're seeing that they're doing the right things from training and they're, they're, they're implementing the instructions, that's pleasing. But part of that is, it's kind of similar to when, when the manager used to keep getting asked about his style and his philosophy. And after a while, I think he just get tired and, of it. And he said, look, I'm not doing this because I just enjoy watching it. I'm doing it because I know it's yeah. successful and, and we win games, which has, has proven to be the case. So if you're replicating that at a B team, it's because ultimately they know Darren and Stephen are training these players, they know they're doing it because on the Saturday they think this is going to win us the game and that's, you know, more often than not this season, that's proven to be the case. Yeah, I suppose one of the successes as well for the, the B team so far this season has been that the trip to Australia and the first team are away in Portugal at this moment in time as well as both Rocco Vata and Boston Noel have been in both of those trips and, and impressed as well. So. That's obviously what the B team are there to do, to, to get players and put them into the first team environment and hopefully they become first team regulars. So it's great to see those two guys up there and, and performing well. And I suppose that's a consideration to, to keep in mind for the, the B team that they've still been winning games and that's without two really important players for them as well. So hopefully, I'm sure the guys want to get some more minutes over in Portugal and it'll be a good experience for them. Um, Paul, to finish off, as we always do, um, our predictions game. Um, Last week, me and you both only got four points. Uh, the fan we had on got six points last week, so they beat, beat the two of us. Um, we're recording this on Monday, so we're going to take some of the games um, that are taking place in the World Cup on the Monday as well, um, just in case this goes out a little bit later on. Um, but just in, in general, in the World Cup, we've obviously had four Celtic players there. It was amazing to see them all get through to that round of 16 you know, we're speaking ahead of Japan playing Croatia, so we know that one Celtic player is definitely going to get into the, the quarterfinals. What have you made of the World Cup and obviously the, the Celtic players' contributions as well? Kind of like what you, you touched upon at the start of the podcast, it's, 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 I suppose it's been a welcome distraction, yeah. the fact that there's not been any Celtic games. And I think like all these tournaments, it, it, it builds a bit of momentum the longer the tournament goes on and then it gets into the knockout stages, so it's a winner-take-all each game. I've enjoyed watching it, you know, there's been a few surprises and you know generally and, and I think as you, you see start to filter like it's England France in, in the quarter final Holland versus Argentina so it's, so it's the big kind of powerhouses of, of world football as it were so you're really excited looking forward to those games in terms of the, the Celtic players I think you can see so for example I think um, Aaron Moy was exceptional and what was interesting was there's a slight frustration for me because there was a couple of games where I, I was almost shouting at the TV, telling the commentators, do you know he's been playing for Celtic for the last six months? Because they're so obsessed with any player's link with the English Premier yeah. League. And the reason why he's doing so well, he's obviously a really good player, but the reason why Australia get the benefit, when, when he helped them qualify, he was out, out, you know, he didn't have a club, hadn't really been training much, but obviously gave everything to get them there. But the fact he's been playing with us for the last six months, playing in the Champions League, you saw the benefit of that and actually... He was one of the standout players for Australia, just having that ability to put his foot in the ball just for those few seconds and keep possession. And I thought he was absolutely exceptional. I think Japan, again, the game that they dropped, Dyson Maeda, was the game that they lost. Yeah. And the two other games against the stronger opposition in Germany and Spain, he basically, it was almost as if the, the manager had said to him, right, play for an hour, through the middle, completely stretch the defence, you know, run them ragged and then you've done your job and then we'll, we'll send in a couple of fresh faces and it's really benefited them so I would be surprised when they play the game against Croatia if that's not the, the formation because Dyson through the middle I think has been excellent and again the managers in those games the balance has been really good I think I, I think America uh, made a mistake in not playing Carter Vickers in the their game against Holland I thought he, he played really well in the game against Iran and then they, they kind of reverted back to their, their previous uh, back four um, so he'd have probably been frustrated at that and disappointed that they, they maybe didn't push Holland more than, than they should have and uh, again Croatia you know Josip Juranovic is you know it's part of a really strong Croatian side you know you have to remember that that team 
there's not a massive amount of that squad that were in the World Cup four years ago, but they have that, you know, that mentality of knowing how to get on in the tournament. So the the game against uh, Japan is going to be really interesting. Well, indeed, and that is going to be first up uh, for our predictions. Um, we've got Tony Brown on as well this week, who's who's playing for for the fans. And yeah, if you want to take part, then just. Drop us a line on, on our Celtic View Twitter to, to get involved. So yeah, first one, Japan against Croatia. Now, the World Cup so far, we've had shocks, we've had surprises. As of yet, in the, the round of 16, we've not had any. I think there probably will be maybe one or two surprises to, to come. Croatia are probably the favourites because of their, their past experience in the World Cup. Will there be a, a surprise in this one? Will Japan get through or will Croatia do it? I mean, I'm not sure. I think this is the, probably the, the tie of the, the last 16 that, you know, if either side win, it's not yeah. a, a surprise. I mean, the fact that Japan yeah, fair, have beaten yeah. Germany and Spain and have done well in previous tournaments as well, that they, I think they weren't that far away from getting to the, the quarterfinals. Was it Belgium beat them late on? They were winning 2-0 at, at one point. So I think either way, I think either of those teams can get their merit. I do think Japan will shade it. I, I think they're just... There's, there's something about the... <clears throat> I think the one danger for them is they seem to be a team that... So in the Germany game and the Spain game, it could have been all over at half-time. Both of those countries dominated in the first half without finishing Japan off. But <clears throat> in the second half, it was almost like a different team. And teams struggled to cope with their energy. So I'm going to go, uh, similar to those other two games, 2-1 for Japan. OK. Um, probably yep. everybody's predicted that. Yeah, no, well... Tony's went for 2-1 to Croatia and yeah, I'm, I'm going for Maeda to just pip Juranovic as well and I'm going I'm going 3-1 actually to Japan. And that one. So, because Japan, what's been, as you said, what's been good about them is that they've went behind the games um, and the, the game they won against Spain and Germany, they came back from behind, which, which shows a real strength. So, I can see Croatia getting a goal, but I just think, I think Japan might do. I've been impressed from um, in, the, in those two wins. Next up, is uh, Brazil against South Korea. Brazil, a team that have probably been most people's favourites at the start. South Korea have, I suppose, their group with Uruguay and Ghana. It really could have been any of those three teams that went through and Korea just sneaked in, but they have that, that man sawn up front as well. So will they, will they cause a surprise or will it be Brazil? No, I think Brazil yeah. will get through. It's interesting, I'm not quite sure... So South Korea, I mean, it was an injury time goal that got them through. So there'll be that euphoria of, of qualifying from that group. I suppose that can work one or two ways because then there's no pressure on them. They are playing probably the, the pre-tournament favourites. So th they might just be that they just go for it. I just think Brazil have got too much in terms of firepower. And I think Neymar's back for this game as yeah. well, which I think will make a difference because I think he focuses attention as well, which allows maybe space for some of the other players. Um, to, to do you know the damage that we've seen in previous games, so I'm going to go for three one to Brazil. Okay, Tony's went for four 0 and I'm going for two 0 in that one. I don't just off the top of my head, I don't think Brazil have had a game would have really sort of like wiped the floor in terms of goal scoring yet. I think it's been a couple of maybe one 0s and a two 0 and then they obviously lost the last game, but they made a lot of changes. But um, but yeah, I think it will still be fairly tight. But Brazil will, Brazil will edge it. Um, there's two other games in the round of 16, and maybe there's the two games, if you were to say, there, there might be a surprise. They might have come in one of these two um, before the round of 16 started. Uh, so next up is Morocco against Spain. And I, I don't know who's actually going to come out on top in the end, but I've went for like a, a draw after 90 minutes of, of two each. I've been really impressed with Morocco, and I've been impressed with Spain in spells, you just kind of maybe feel like they can turn it on a little bit more if they if they have to, but I think they're I think they're two good teams and they might be quite evenly matched. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair assessment. I think I think if it was just a possession World Cup, Spain would be the mm -hmm. champions by far. And I I think that was interesting when they played. You know, their last game, um, they they had all the possession in the second half. And I mean, it was a really good performance defensively from Japan. I felt another team that would maybe be a bit more direct at times would have beaten them because they were they just they laid siege to the the penalty area without creating too many chances and the, it was almost as if they were trying to pass their way in for the perfect goal. So I'm not sure. I, I almost feel like Spain. There's a team there that 
you know, you could see the next Euros or the next World mm -hmm. Cup, they, everything will come to fruition and, you know, they would be one of the favourites. I'm not sure if there's maybe one or two teams that are slightly better than them. I'm, I actually think, I'm going to go 2-1 Morocco. I actually think Morocco, I think there's a, wee, there's a directness about Morocco. I think there's a lot of really good players and, the, you know, the really good football. I, you know, we always talk about there's maybe one team that's, that's going to surprise people in the tournament and get further than people expect I, I think it's going to be Morocco so I'm going to go 2-1 mm. I was weighing up I was weighing up a 2-1 as well I thought it might just who knows they might, they might end up winning so who's, it or? so who's going to end up winning because obviously at 2 each it goes to extra time and penalties <sighs> oh, I really don't know everything everything inside me wants to say Spain because of the players that they have and it's just a Spain the nation um, so you always have confidence in them but I I kind of feel like Morocco might do it as well. I think they, they could. I, I don't think I'd be completely shocked if they do because of what they've done already this tournament and looked really good. So if I had to be pushed eventually, I'd maybe see Morocco as well. But I'll go for two each over 90 minutes. And uh, that's, that's ideal as well because Tony's went for two into Spain. So we've got three different results there. So someone's going to win. Anyway, someone's going to get a point. Um, the last round of the 16 game is Portugal against Switzerland. I think that's get penalty shootout written all over it. Mm -hmm. um, I think Switzerland. Are, I think we spoke about it before. They're one of those teams that you know you would never want to get them in the group stages because they're they're, they're a very difficult team to beat. I think they and they they, they get out the group quite often. There was a wee edge to their game against Serbia for for political reasons. You could see you know especially Granit Xhaka was like a man possessed to make sure that he beat Serbia. Um, and Shakiri as well, so I'm not sure they've expended a lot of, of energy getting past that. I think Portugal probably look like the better team, get more attacking options, but not, they're not prolific goal scorers. So I'm I'm going to go for one each after 90 minutes and Portugal to win in penalties. Oh, okay, Ronaldo won't get the winning penalty in that one. Well, I don't remember. The, remember there was a penalty shoot at a previous tournament where they get knocked out. But he he wanted to wait. He was like the fourth yes, or fifth. He, missed it. He, he was looking for glory as yeah. opposed to doing what most teams do, put the best penalty takers first. I didn't get the chance so, to hit it. Um, but no, I think they'll go through. All about Ronaldo? Never. That's <laughs> never been the case. Um, Tony's went for a 1-0 win for Portugal. I'm going for a 2-1 win for Portugal. Um, I, I, Switzerland are a team that could win that game. Um, we saw it in the Euros last year. They beat France in, in the quarterfinals last 16. Um, so they always they always get a result at major tournaments. Portugal, I've never got like so much confidence over. To, like, and you've got a game like this where you'd expect them to win. Sometimes I feel like they do slip up, but... I'll go to one Portugal. Um, and that leads us on to the quarterfinals. So at the moment, we know two of the, the quarterfinals. And first up is the Netherlands against Argentina. I'm hoping that Argentina get through. I find... Uh, I'm never that enamoured of, of the Dutch side. You know, I, they, they don't excite me. No. You know, I, I, I don't think... You know, they're the sort of team, when I was watching them the other night, I thought they are the sort of team that could suddenly appear in the semi-final or final, kind of similar to 2010, where, you know, they kind of almost under the radar. Yeah. They, they don't really excite you. But I think Argentina, after that fright of the first game and then slight struggle in the second game, I don't. I just get the feeling there's a wee bit of momentum building with them. I think they'll win 2-1. Okay. I'd also say 2-1, but I'll, I'll change that and I'll go 1-0, just so we're different. Um, I think it will be tight, but when Messi's on that form like he showed in Saturday night against Argent uh, against Australia, then he's just he's unplayable. So, so I, I think I think he's going to get into the semis, and then hopefully that set up a game against Brazil, which would be yeah, incredible, tasty. Uh, and Tony's went for a two-nil win uh, in Argentina, and then that leaves us with the last quarter-final game that we know of at the moment, and that is England against France. And we've kind of been debating this morning about England's. Chances in this one already, and and how they're looking. Um, I think so far they've actually looked pretty decent for international standards. And I thought they were as much as the first half an hour against Senegal, they kind of flattered to deceive. I actually think that was a strength for them that they then came back and, and won that game after going under pressure. Um, and they've got some really really exciting players. I, I don't know this one. What are you predicting? 
protected one each. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is a, which is a bit of a <laughs> I really don't know. Um, again, similar with like Spain, everything inside me, France are world champions. I mean, they were again, they were good against Poland and Giroud, absolutely loved Giroud as a player. I think he's absolutely brilliant. Um, and Mbappe getting two goals, he's just, I think he's already scored more goals in World Cups than Cristiano Ronaldo, he's on nine already, and he's probably going to end up going on and breaking Miroslav Kosa's record at some point if he keeps on, on that track. So they've got, they're a really good team, France, and they've obviously got that individual talent as well. But I think it could be a cagey game, and I, I, have, been, I have been impressed with England. Yes. Yeah, I, I think the England's, as you said, England's great strength is they've got four or five match winners in there. You know, you give them one chance. You know, Harry Kane, Foden, Saka, Bellingham's been outstanding. So they've got goals in their team. So they'll create chances and, you know, so they're liable to get a goal. I think what has always been the, the great weakness of England in, in international tournaments is I don't think they keep possession well enough. I don't think they look as comfortable on the ball between the defence and midfield as other countries do. And I feel when they come up against a, a team, so for example, a team like France who are so comfortable with possession and move it so quickly, I think they give the ball away too quickly because the, the back line, are, I don't think, are good enough on the ball. I think I think France might just edge it. And interestingly, I think, <clears throat> obviously the focus is on Mbappe, who's just been sensational. I agree with you. I think Giroud, you know, Probably not for the first time you and I talk more sense than somebody like Graham Souness, who um, for, for inexplicable reasons ends up on national telly talking nonsense. But he, he described somebody of Giroud, his career has been been a lucky player. But, he, you know, it's, it's astonishing. So I think they're the focus. I think Dembele on the right-hand side, I, I just wonder if England will be so focused. And, yeah. you know, I, even post-match I heard some of the debate of how do, how do England stop Dem, um, Mbappe? But I don't know if they'll just end up focusing so much on that that there's so many other good players in the French side that allows you know so Mbappe might take all the uh, the sort of the, the interest and the attention, but leave some space for the other players. I think France will shade it two one. Again, I think that's a team that they've got a great manager and they've got a team that uh, you know that, that look desperate to try and retain the World Cup, which is such a difficult thing to do. And I think just the fact that they can hold the ball better than England, I think ultimately um, might, that'll shade it. But I, I think it's going to be a very, very tight game. Actually, that's another game that you could actually see going to extra time and penalties. Although I'm, I'm not sitting on the fence with it. But <laughs> I, I think you're right though, um, with maybe focusing too much on, on Mbappe. I think that could, that could be their downfall potentially England if they end up trying to change what they do so much to try and accommodate Mbappe, or I've already heard people saying they might end up going back to a back three when they've been a back four this whole time, all that type of thing. And it's funny because there was like the heat map in the game against Poland, and all of France's players were pretty much their average positions on the left hand side, apart from Dembele. His average position was literally like on the touchline, like getting chalk against his boots. So that probably goes to that point where. All the kind of play, maybe focus down the left, focus down the left, and you just go bang out to the right, and then everything's open. But it's a good game. It's one of those ones where I think we were chatting about it before. Um, we chatted about it with other people as well. You love having a shock in a tournament. It's brilliant. You know, you love supporting the underdog. But then, see when you do get to the quarterfinals, and you're looking at the moment: Netherlands against Argentina, England against France, potentially the Argentina Brazil semi final. They are the games that that get you excited maybe a bit more so than if it were a, a, a Morocco or something like that. But yeah. it's still, either way, as long as you get the good games, then... I mean, I think whoever wins that game will get to the final. Yeah. I, th I think either of those two teams, I think, are capable and just having that momentum then t to reach the final, um, whoever they end up playing against. You know, and, and as I say, we're, we're hoping for an Argentina-Brazil semi-final in the other one. But yeah, I think that... that that game is, is key. I, I, I think if England get past it, I think they'll get to the final and, and similarly mm -hmm. for France. Yeah, um, and to finish off on, uh, we'll take one of the, the games from the Celtic teams. There's no women's team action, there's no first team action. We're left with the, the B teams this week. Um, their trip away to Cowdenbeath on Saturday. I'm going for a 3-0 win in that one. I think Celtic are starting to 
hit a bit of form, scoring some goals. So I'd be, I'd be quite confident with that one. Maybe win that three 0 What about yourself? I'll go for four two. Four two. There's a few. There's, there seems to be a few goals in yeah. the games in recent times, and you know the teams have maybe managed to nick a goal or two against us. But I think, we've, as you say, we've got goals in that team. So. 4-2 for Celtic. Yeah. Tony's went for 2-0 on that one and he also, Tony's went for 3-1 in the for France and England France game as well. So I would take that. <laughs> I would take that. Um but yeah, that's us for now for another week of the Celtic View podcast. Uh, thank you very much for joining us and do join us again next week. We hear the second part of that exclusive interview with Martin O'Neill. But for now, thanks very much and see you then. <laughs>